Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to a new episode of Say Why to Drugs. This is a long episode, so I'll keep this brief. Now, today we're going to talk about a topic that's been requested a lot since I started these podcasts. But there's certainly a debate to be had about whether it even really is a drug. Glucose is the fuel for every cell in our bodies. But does that mean that we should stuff our faces with candy floss and toffee? Today, I'm joined by Dr Charlotte Hardman from the University of Liverpool as we say why to sugar. Today I am joined by Dr Charlotte Hardman from the University of Liverpool. We work in the same department, the Department of Psychological Sciences. So Charlotte, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about what you do? So I'm a psychologist and I study appetite and eating behaviour. So for quite a few years now I've been looking at some of the factors which determine how, what and when we eat. This is really controlled by, by lots of different things. Eating is not just about being hungry. Um, there are a lot of other factors, um, both within the person and also in the environment, which determine what we eat. And, and this is what psychologists in this area are really trying to get a grip on. And, you know, all this research is obviously very important in the light of the so-called obesity crisis, which anyone who reads the news will know about. Um, in westernised countries, you know, we really are I'm seeing quite unprecedented levels of obesity. And given the health consequences of obesity and the implications for physical and psychological health, it's really important that we try to understand what it is that's leading people to overconsume and then use this knowledge to try and develop intervention strategies. So I think it's quite obvious now why I've got Charlotte to help me out with this episode all about sugar. Do you think sugar is a drug in the same way that something like cannabis or alcohol is a drug? Um, so, so my answer to that would be no, I don't think sugar is an addictive substance. Um, I mean, this is a really contentious area in the scientific literature on um, food at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's been going on for quite some years now. And I think, you know, the answer that you get to that question will really depend on who you speak to. And there are definitely scientists working in this area who would tell you pretty definitely, well, yes, sugar is addictive. Um, but I think it's really important just to sort of look at the available evidence mm -hmm. and what's out there. Um, 
A lot of the evidence um, for so-called sugar addiction um, does come from animals. And so obviously, you know, we need to kind of think about how representative those sorts of studies are of human behaviour. And I think as well, the media does, does have a role to play in the way that it interprets Almost certainly. studies yeah. and study findings. And, you know, you will see some quite interesting headlines um, <laughs> if you look out for them. Mm-hmm. Does sugar have a kind of psychoactive effect? Because some people will think or say that they eat sweet things to make themselves feel better maybe absolutely yeah I mean sugar tastes really nice and I think that's kind of you know one of the primary drivers for why we consume sugary foods or sweet tasting foods is that that they are highly palatable Mm. they they taste really really nice that can Um, confirm they do (laughs) um, (laughs) and you know we want to but for the most part we want to enjoy eating we want to enjoy our food if we have a meal that isn't yeah. very nice, uh, we tend to be quite disappointed. Sugar is also thought to be quite biologically important. Um, and uh, newborn babies, for example, will show a preference for sugars. There's quite a, a neat series of studies showing that if you place sweet a sweet taste onto a newborn baby's tongue, they will um, show a characteristic um, facial expression which is a tongue protrusion and this kind of indicates acceptance and you also see this behavior in uh, monkeys and in rats so it seems to be something that is cross-species and then if you do the same thing with very bitter tasting substances then you see this sort of characteristic sort of grimacing Hmm. Um, the infant doesn't like that taste at all and rejects it so it seems to be that we do have this sort of innate preference for sweet tasting foods and this could actually be traced back to um, to our ancestors and to when we were hunter-gatherers, when foods which contain, so obviously sweetness can be a signal for calories. Sweet-tasting foods Mm. tend to contain calories. So the idea is that we might have this sort of innate preference for sweetness because back in our evolutionary past, it was good to consume sweet-tasting foods because that would be a good source of energy. And we needed to kind of learn a way of telling if a new food was going to be good to eat and deliver calories. And the idea is that sweetness may have helped us to do that. Been a bit of a proxy for... Exactly, yeah, sort of a cue for this is a good food to eat. Um, This is something that will provide energy, as opposed to something, a bitter food, um, which could be toxic and could actually kill us. Mm. So this is all kind of back when we had to go out and forage for our food. Our food supply was very uncertain. We had to expend lots of energy to get our foods. And so the, the idea is that potentially this sort of natural preference that we have for sweetness might have actually been adaptive. Mm. But obviously now, if you think about the way our environment is, our environment is dramatically different. Um, we obviously don't have to go and forage for our foods. Um, and actually, instead, what we have are you know a mass array of high-calorie, sweet-tasting foods available to us sort of 24-7. But the idea is that we still have kind of maintained this natural preference for sweetness, which might have been adaptive once, but is actually now quite counterproductive. Mm. So maybe to backtrack a little bit even, what is sugar? There's different types mm. of sugar, which, which can be a bit confusing, I think, sometimes. But you've basically kind of got single molecules, then double molecules, and then kind of longer chains, which are sort of the different forms of sugar. Well, what a lot of the guidance has been around recently is around free sugars and actually trying to, you know, we're really being encouraged to restrict our intake of free sugars. So are those things like sucrose? That's like table sugar, caster sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yes, sucrose, sucrose, fructose, um, glucose, high energy corn syrup. So all these sorts of things. These are um, sugars which which are uh, we often be added to foods. Um, so confectionery, um, biscuits, cakes, mm-hmm. um, all these sorts of foods will be high in free sugars. But something that's quite important for people to to know is that actually fruit juice and honey and syrups also contain free sugars. So there is a little bit of a mm. misconception there that sugars which are natural are in some way better but honey syrups um, fruit juice they all contain free sugars as well and we are being encouraged to restrict our intake Uh, so the world health organization um, advises that we shouldn't be consuming more than 10 percent of our diet from free sugars that really should be a maximum and if anything we should try and reduce it down Mm. to five percent but given that sugar is added to so many foods it is really quite difficult it's quite tricky isn't it it is and and labels can be confusing as well because um, often labels will only give information about total sugars and some of those sugars will be sugars from fruit in some products but others you know will be added sugar looking at ingredients lists will give you an insight so anything which has got fructose sucrose high energy corn syrup then Mm. that's that, that has got free sugars. So is there, is there a difference between sucrose and fructose? It's the um, molecular structure. It's just the number of kind of molecules. But it's, but it's pretty, such, yeah, pretty sugar similar. is sugar. Yeah. It's just sort of the form that it's in. The issue with fruit juice is just it's very concentrated. A glass of juice might have been made out of a, a lot of oranges. Um, so you're actually kind of getting all the sugar from loads of oranges in one glass. So it's a very efficient way of getting loads and loads of sugar yeah so while an orange might be good for you having concentrated orange juice where you're drinking sort of 30 oranges or more absolutely and an orange contains fiber vitamins all these sorts of really good things which we need left in the pulpa yeah (laughs) so there isn't really evidence that sugar in fruit and vegetables and milk has adverse effects which is why they tend to not they are not included in the free sugar Mm. category and obviously we know of course that eating lots of these sorts of foods of fruit and vegetables is you know has many health benefits for other reasons we want to just be quite careful i think about this idea that sugar can be healthy just because it happens to be in foods which have other health benefits yeah well i mean this is something we've talked about in loads of other episodes in the podcast that natural doesn't necessarily mean safe absolutely deadly nightshades are natural but you still probably shouldn't eat them (laughs) i think yeah Okay, so what are the sort of short-term effects of sugar? When you eat some sugar or consume some sugar somehow, what happens? So, I mean, for most people, I think consuming foods which have sugar in um, is nice and enjoyable. Um, so generally just sort of a feeling of, of pleasure. Um, I mean, one one sort of scenario that people might really um, be able to identify with is the kind of thing when you're out in a restaurant and you've had a big meal um, and you kind of feel like, I'm really full, I can't eat yeah. anymore. Um, and then suddenly the dessert menu comes out and you feel I've like... suddenly got room from somewhere. <laughs> suddenly, wow, well, wow. Well. <laughs> and we think this prob- you know, this this happens because when we become full, when we're eating a meal, our feelings of satiation, or fullness are sensory specific so what that means is we tend to become full up on the food that we're eating but foods that we haven't eaten which are of a different sensory quality which taste different basically still kind of remain attractive and, and interesting you know people might have the experience of actually yeah. eating till they kind of physically feel that they're going to burst but because the eating of the food is still quite pleasurable 
Yeah, um, I often find that with sweet things, particularly actual sweets like Haribo or something like that, is that I'll eat them and I'll, I'll feel a bit sick, but I'll still want to eat more of them. Yeah. It's really annoying. <laughs> yeah. A problem with a lot of these foods is actually, although they you know, contain a lot of calories, they're very energy dense, we would say they're actually not that filling. Mm. Um, so we're going to get much more full if we eat a load of boiled potatoes than um, if we ate a bag of Maltesers. But obviously we would get a lot more pleasure <laughs> from eating, most of us would, would get a lot more pleasure from eating the Maltesers. Mm. So sometimes, you know, there can be kind of this sort of trade-off between sort of fullness, but actually experiencing pleasure from a food. And are there other sort of effects when you eat sugar? Do things happen in your brain or do things happen in your body? Do you get kind of, yeah, physiological or emotional responses to it. Yeah. I guess we've covered emotional responses a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just another kind of key driver of eating high sugar, high fat foods is mood. I think mm. that that is a really important thing to talk about. Yes, we will eat these foods because they give us pleasure. But there's also, you know, another kind of psychological process, which is eating foods to make ourselves feel better. And this is a really common one when you talk to people. If, you know, I had a really bad day, feeling really down. I just, you know, want something to make myself feel mm. a bit better. Yeah, so I went and got the ice cream tub out of the freezer. Yeah, Bridget and, yeah. Jones, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I mean, there has been research done on this, asking people who were self-professed chocolate addicts to record a diary about what were the sorts of things that triggered their chocolate eating. And interestingly, it showed that the, the chocolate addicts, so-called chocolate addicts, were much more likely to consume chocolate in response to negative mood. Mm. But what was quite interesting was actually that it, it didn't really seem to have much of an effect in terms of making their mood better. And if anything, they reported high levels of guilt afterwards so mm. so well, the idea actually that it kind of does make it all seem better it might be quite a short-lived effect which is then kind of followed up with just kind of feeling guilty yeah. about kind of eating so much chocolate and actually ending up feeling a bit worse and there is also evidence suggesting that sort of these eating as a coping mechanism you know it's people who do that do tend to have a higher body weight more issues um sort of psychological issues so it's not it doesn't seem to be a, a particularly adaptive way mm. of coping and i guess with those kind of studies it's hard to work out in what direction causality might be operating as well yeah, as yeah absolutely do, do people end up feeling low because of it or are they low already and then that leads to that kind of behavior it's like mm-hmm. they, i'm not sure the, the studies haven't really been able to kind no, of unpick no, that they have haven't they? Yeah. It. yeah there's a, quite a big literature looking at at the brain and i think this is sort of where we start to kind of get into the sugar or chocolate or whatever is addictive because yeah there certainly are studies kind of showing that these are all studies using fmri so brain scanning studies so looking at if you show people pictures of chocolate if people smell or taste chocolate then you do see sort of patterns of activation in key brain areas which are thought to be important Mm. for reward and the reason everyone gets very excited about these sorts of studies is because these are also areas which tend to be activated by things like alcohol, cocaine. Yeah. So this is kind of where the analogies. Mm-hmm. Um, Sugar is as, as addictive as crack cocaine. Is absolutely, one of the yeah. I think myths that is I have a, written yeah. down. On my <laughs> that paper is actually a headline. I think it was cheese. Oh, cheese is addictive. That's, oh, yes. That one's been been around as well. Actually, that that particular study wasn't even an imaging study. That was just asking people to rate foods that they happen to find addictive and. It so happened that quite a lot of the foods people rated had cheese in them. Yeah. Um, so yes, that was extrapolated to cheeses as addictive mm-hmm. as crack cocaine. Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of look at these articles with a critical eye, and also actually then going and looking at the actual study and what did they do. And quite often they did things like 
basically showing people pictures of the food or letting them taste it or smell it and showing these particular patterns of activation. Um, the problem is, is that just because sugar, chocolate, whatever, might have similar effects on the brain as things like alcohol and drugs, it, it doesn't mean it's addictive. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the problem for those studies. Um, and, you know, if you look elsewhere, um, you'll see that lots of things similarly activate those particular areas of the brain. So things like just seeing pictures of attractive people, listening to music, just basically anything that's kind of personally relevant to somebody at that time will tend to lead to activation in brain reward areas. Yeah. And it's kind of just really sort of signalling that this is something that's important to that person. It's something that's kind of motivationally relevant because obviously everybody has to eat. Yep. <laughs> um, and, you know, one idea is actually what drugs are doing is hijacking the brain's natural reward system yeah that's an idea that's sort of been put out there yeah and I think this is sort of quite indicative of not all but certainly it's a potential limitation to brain scanning studies is that we don't know enough about the brain to really know that if a certain area shows increased activation newspapers might say lights up lights up which is not a very helpful term as we both just made a face at each other for for the (laughs) listeners yeah but if a certain area of the brain is activated we don't necessarily know what that means it means it's got more blood flow to it it. that's all that we can really really yeah and it's all about the interpretation and actually we wrote an editorial um some colleagues and i a few years ago again about another study which was published and had a lot of media coverage this was about high and low glycemic meals and it showed that participants who'd been served a high glycemic meals this is where you get the kind of the spike in insulin so then four hours later they said they were more hungry and they had lower glucose levels in their blood and they also um showed this pattern of um, increased activation in the nucleus accumbens so the nucleus accumbens is the area that, <laughs> that comes out all the time as sort of you know it's supposed to be the reward center of the brain and I mean that's kind of highly debatable uh, you know it's anyway, all, yeah. much more complicated than that but that's sort of the idea so again this was kind of interpreted as potentially indicating addiction and sort of the point that we one of the points we made in the editorial was actually because the authors of that study hadn't taken any behavioural measures, it was really impossible to interpret what that actually meant. So yes, they showed this differential pattern of Mm. activation in a brain region in people who'd had a high glycemic meal compared to people who'd had a low glycemic meal, but actually how you interpreted that. Um, And because they didn't, you know, they hadn't taken any measures of food cravings or food preferences or intake, it was difficult to really know what that meant. Yeah. So obviously we have been talking a lot about sugar and I think actually what a lot of studies have been done on is chocolate. Mm. And of course chocolate is high in sugar, but chocolate's also high in fat. Yes, yes, that's a very good point. So I think, you know, there has been this real focus and I think this might be something we'll talk about a bit further down the line. But (laughs) kind of the switch from focusing on fat to focusing on sugar. When actually, but when you know, when you look at a lot of the foods that people kind of seem to overconsume on um, and report having problems with, they tend to be foods that are high in fat and high in sugar. And so also ice cream falls into that ice category cream, as well. Absolutely, yeah. ice cream, chocolate cakes, all these sorts of foods. But then, you know, then there are people who actually will say, well, I don't really like sweet foods. And that's kind of a bit where sort of the cheese is addictive as mm. crack idea came in. Because in that study, particular study, it was cheese, pizza. But obviously in foods like pizza, there's all sorts of things going yeah. on in pizza. But what all of these foods have in common is they're just very high in calories. Mm. They're very energy dense. So there's a lot of calories and not very much volume. So they're very efficient ways of getting calories 
there's a surprising amount of sugar in savoury food, isn't there? There is, again, because sugar makes food taste nice. <laughs> <laughs> Even food that you're not sweet. expecting to be yeah. sweet. Yeah. Sweetness is, you know, as we said earlier, is a really powerful natural reinforcer. I mean, not everybody likes sweetness, admittedly, mm. and sweet taste preference does decline but you know a lot of people do yeah. yeah but it always surprises me like how much sugar there is in sort of shop made pasta sauces yes. and i'm guessing shop bought pizzas as well the sort of tomato Absolutely. sauce tomato. on pizzas yeah. is going to yeah. be very high in sugar probably yeah. and salt as well mm-hmm. so yes there are lots of things added to our food and you know the food industry is under a lot of pressure now they've done it with salt and now there is a real move to try to reduce sugar in food. Um, a study that came out a couple of months ago asked people to sort of report their addictive tendencies towards actual cl- particular classes of foods. And what came out there, quite interestingly, was that people reported the highest number of sort of addictive tendencies towards foods that were both high in fat and, sh- high, and high in sugar and foods um, that were high in fat. So things like burgers. Oh, interesting. Pizzas, um, yeah. And actually exclusively high sugar foods featured a little bit lower. People were kind of less likely to report addictive tendencies towards those with some of the studies that we'd been doing we kind of originally had ideas about trying to match people to specific foods but actually the foods that people came out with were so idiosyncratic so specific you know, people, to yeah them. you know yeah. people were kind of saying you know it's kfc zingerberg or you know people <laughs> would name the exact brand which i think then kind of speaks to this issue about is there an addictive substance and you know if sugar was an addictive substance then really we would be eating bags of sugar yeah <laughs> yeah. Shelves. yeah you we, can just buy sugar we would just go and buy sugar and eat it so should we move on to talking about the longer term yep impacts of sugar and is there good evidence about what the effects of eating too much sugar for a long period of time is yeah i mean it is a very complicated area and i think what we probably do need is longer term trials really randomized controlled trials i mean these studies can sort of be a little bit difficult to do because obviously it's not that ethical to ply people with sugar the strength of the evidence really is that it's not good (laughs) sort of longer term the longer term health consequences i should say are yeah pretty negative what a lot of researchers looked at is sugar sweetened beverages Mm -hmm. um particularly in children so that's like fizzy drinks and basically and fruit juices yeah i think probably with fruit juices i mean they were kind of traditionally thought of as being healthy healthy it's only really been in the last few years really with them obviously kind of falling into the free sugar bracket mm. and of, of foods that actually we really should be limiting but i think traditionally they were thought of as, as a as but a is this option. because we've started adding more sugar to fruit juice or we just sort of understood better about sugar probably the latter i, I would say okay. just the, the evidence really um linking sugary drinks to poor health outcomes there are quite a few studies now suggesting that greater consumption of sugar sweetened beverages is associated with weight gain with obesity and with increased risk of diabetes, um, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular problems. The, I mean, the really big one with children is is dental decay. Mm. And that has been in the news a lot over the past few years. Unprecedented numbers of, of kids actually having to have teeth taken out because of so much decay. Do you think that's something sort of specific to sugar rather than sugar and fat yeah that's that's been specific to sugar and it's specifically linked to, sh- to the drinks yeah to sugar sweetened beverages i think they're probably quite an easy thing and e- maybe an easier thing to kind of quantify the other problem as well with sugar sweetened drinks is it's just this you know they don't have any nutritional benefit yeah. to them at all <laughs> you know a lot of people will say well it really is sort of empty calories empty calories yeah um you know, just to drink a can of coke a day exceeds your daily sugar 
allowance. And certainly certainly for children. Yeah. Absolutely for children. So, you know, just as to have a can of Coke a day, that's before yeah. you've kind of eaten any food. So, you know, we're looking at increased risk of being overweight, having you know, diabetes, other cardiovascular, pro- cardiovascular problems, and yet tooth decay. Yeah. Sort of the main ones, really. It is quite difficult for people trying to lead healthy lives because the information does seem to have changed a lot over the past sort of few decades. When I was growing up, it was very much that sort of fat and cholesterol are the bad things. Mm -hmm. And then there was this idea that actually what you eat is less important than how much you exercise. And now it's very much that fat is probably okay or not as bad as we thought it was and sugar is now the evil food substance. (laughs) Do you think this reflects the sort of development of the literature or do you think there's a it's a bit faddy or do you think it's sort of a combination yeah there has been a lot of focus on sugar and I think there have been concerns and these sorts of concerns have been raised and sort of in the public health and sort of scientific communities mm. is that well if we're just focusing on sugar we're we making fat seem better yeah I mean I'm not aware of any studies which have actually kind of tested that out and sort of looked at how it might sort of shift people's attitudes Mm. Um, but I think as I kind of said earlier the drivers of our eating are incredibly complex you know there are physiological biological factors there are psychological factors social environmental factors all of these things control what we eat and then all of these things can then conspire to make us overeat and I think we really have to look at the obesogenic environment again we sort of touched on earlier in the idea that we might have this natural preference for sweet tasting foods which in modern environments is now counterproductive because you know because they're so easy to get they're so easy to get and when we do get them they taste nice and we like eating them and we can kind of keep eating them because they don't really fill us up and then we can just go and get some more and and then maybe we're trying to cut down and sort of restrict our intake of these foods but everywhere we go they're just you know there's billboards advertising them and we walk past a shop and then there it is or we go out with our friends and everybody else is eating something nice and it's just kind of incredibly difficult and you know, again, this will resonate a lot with what you've been talking about in the podcast, such so as the, the importance of cues and how yeah. cues can really trigger behaviour. Um, and so, you know, we might kind of have a goal of that. I'm not going to eat anything unhealthy today. I'm not going to eat any sugary, high fat foods. I'm going to be really, really good. Yeah. But, you know, then someone's bought cake into work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, that, you know, there can all be all these sorts of things that really kind of throw us off our tracks and it's really really hard but I suppose the point I wanted to make is that I think just the causes of obesity are incredibly complex and we can't just say it's eating too much sugar eating too much fat not doing enough exercise because it's 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 just none of them and all of them and more and Yeah, yeah and in different people it's going to be different um so yeah it doesn't make it at all easy to manage yeah. and deal with obesity. Um, but it, it does mean that we're going to need many approaches and kind of targeted a- action at lots of different levels. Shall we move on to myths? Yes. Okay, yes. I, I've got a list. <laughs> okay, we've sort of already covered this first one, but um, sugar is addictive. I mean, actually, I would probably be a bit inclined to sit on the fence in that I would say it's, I don't think it's addictive in the same way I don't think it's an addictive substance but I think when you look at the tendency to overeat and also the tendency to consume other sort of well, harmful substances what you can quite often see there is sort of behaviors that that look quite similar so quite often sort of the underpinning psychology of why people 
engaged mm-hmm. in these particular behaviours might be quite similar and common. And this has sort of led to an idea, and this is quite a new idea in the eating literature, but this idea that rather than thinking about, we're talking about a kind of substance-based food addiction or an addiction to sugar, perhaps what we should be thinking about is sort of a potential behavioural addiction to eating. So it might actually be just some of these behaviours that people show, sort of the loss of control, the intense cravings, um, the kind of consuming much more of a substance than we wanted to, sort of not being able to stop, um, consuming a large amount of a substance, even though we know it's not going to be good for us. These are all kind of things that are sort of common to our tendency to overconsume other substances. So, yeah, it's the sort of idea that actually what we could be seeing is a bit like a behavioural addiction in the same way that gambling yeah if you think about you know really maladaptive patterns of eating like binge eating disorder where large amounts of food are consumed in, in one sitting and often again it will tend to be you know people generally don't tend to binge eat on broccoli it will tend yeah. to be again these sort of very palatable high sugar high fat foods and so you know, some people have argued that with binge eating that's sort of about the closest that we're ever going to get to sort of addictive eating yeah but again yeah it's not about the actual a substance in the food it's actually more just about the actual kind of act of eating yeah okay so the second myth what are the different types of sugars and is sugar that's in sort of fruit and vegetables is that fine (laughs) so i mean sugar is in fruit and vegetables but in fruit and vegetables there are also this fiber this vitamins there are lots of other good stuff we should consume fruit and vegetables and also you know as we said earlier it's about just the concentration and sort of the amount that yeah. you can actually get. So what about you... so things like dates as well? Everyone says dates are nature's candy. But <laughs> <laughs> so dates have obviously got fibre in yeah. them as well. Yeah. They're not sort of empty, no. completely empty calories. No, it, it's just the, the high levels of sugar. So it's natural sugar, of course, but it's, it's still bad for your teeth. Yeah. Dates still bad for your teeth. And they're, they're really, really sugary, aren't they, dates? Yeah, so. yeah, they are. And they kind of, thing with dates, they kind of stick to your teeth. Mm. So they'll kind of, kind of, you know, stay on there and you actually really kind of need to give your teeth yeah. good scrubbing. <laughs> Is dried food worse than, dried fruit worse than <laughs> wet fruit, for want of a better <laughs> word? Is a grape better than a raisin? What's the difference? I mean, you know, even grapes. Grapes are high High in sugar. Yeah. Which is why sort of with the five a day, quite often with five a day, and this is an area I used to work in, it's, it's not more easy to get kids to eat fruit than vegetables. And again, with fruit, it's the sweetness. Yeah. Which goes back to that sort of preference of sugar in it. that yeah. we have. And it's really interesting, actually, if you can plot sort of children's preference for food against its energy content you get this really kind of nice <laughs> really positive nice association graph, between yeah. actually you know the foods if you ask children what are their favorite fruits and veggies then it's all um the sweetest ones the sweetest ones yeah. and bananas as well but bananas have got a lot of energy in them mm. so you know again bananas are, are are good for you but they are they are sweet they contain more energy mm. than say leeks and broccoli yeah. which do contain sugar but again it's just much more dilute and they have have the bitter taste so they tend to be less acceptable yeah and i guess with dried things like dried fruit is just that they're just that much easier to consume so you tend to consume exactly more yeah of them. there's a lot of sugar in not very much food yeah um and again it sort of goes back to the the orange juice and the actual eating an orange yeah. example i think often people just don't quite realize don't that there the are calories in drinks in yeah. drinks you know i think the move is really towards trying to get people just to drink water yeah I, I I like water. It's fine. <laughs> it's 
broadly yeah, fine. It, yeah, it is. But yeah, one of the biggest things that influences our preference for food is just what we're used to, what we're familiar with. Yeah. If we're used to drinking sweet drinks, if that's kind of what we've always grown up with the drinking, then it's it's hard to it's not. It's like trying to, trying to give up sugar in your tea. It, tea tastes absolutely horrible when you're yeah. used to having sugar in it. It is. But then when you have got through that... If you accidentally drink sugary tea, that tastes horrible. Yeah, and in fact, my father-in-law has just done this. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I saw him in the summer and he said he was going to try and do it, but he wasn't sure if he could. And now he's, you know, he's, he's managed to do it. And oh. it doesn't, so you can do it, but it's, it's not that nice. And it's, yeah, you've got to persevere. I mean, I remember the first time I tasted coffee. I thought it was absolutely disgusting. Yeah. And actually, I had to have sugar in it. Yeah. So that I could accept it. And then <laughs> yeah. gradually, kind of the reinforcement of caffeine kind of kicked in. But, you know, I think um, I use this as an example in a lecture. I kind of get students to kind of say, well, did you actually like beer the first time you tasted yeah. it? Did you like olives? And, you know, most people will kind of say, well, no, I didn't. But actually mm. then I ended up liking it because I went to the pub and everyone was drinking and it was fun. Or, you know, I realised that actually smelly cheese does taste quite nice after a meal. So, you know, all these kind of things that are going on can kind of yeah social expectations so yeah kind of reinforce yeah. kind of acceptance of these foods and then the more you taste it that actually you kind of learn to accept it but you'll get there if you're trying to quit sugar in your tea don't yes, worry i think because <laughs> roy's done it well done, well, roy. well done roy <laughs> okay Next myth, sugar causes cancer. <laughs> now, I think this is a this is quite a wooey one that people are told that, oh, yes, it's the high sugar in your diet that puts you at risk of cancer. And actually, not only should you not eat sugar to avoid cancer, but if you've got cancer, that you should then stop eating sugar to improve your prognosis. Do you think there's any evidence behind it? Why cancer develops and kind of the prognosis of cancer and kind of what's going on at the cellular level is incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, lots of scientists engaged in really important work in trying to unravel these sorts of processes. I don't know of any evidence which could suggest that, that, we, that there's yeah, a direct give link sugar. between sugar and cancer or that, you know, it's going to make your, you know, treatment success like less likely if you consume sugar. I mean, I think kind of the danger there is that if people who are receiving treatment for cancer then start cutting out foods you know any foods that contain sugar well if you're going to cut out fruit and veg for example then that's meaning you're not going to be getting um vitamins essential and, yeah. nutrients vitamins and things that you actually need so there can be issues there with um you know malnutrition but there is an indirect link in that consuming sugar makes you more likely to be overweight and obese and then obesity is associated can be associated yeah. with cancer so you've got that kind of indirect link yeah um, but, but also one of the things we haven't really mentioned yet, but that we probably should mention around now, is that sugar's essential. You yeah, need you some do. sugar in you your do. diet. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It so, plays really vital roles in the yeah. brain and in yeah, the body. Yeah, glucose is sort of the brain and body's fuel. Okay, so the next myth, I was sent this a lot, and that probably says a lot about the age that I and my friends are. I've written it down twice because I was sent it so many times. <laughs> Does sugar make kids hyperactive? Kids go hyper after eating sugar. Oh, that's great, this one. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> Do you think? Um, well, again, I guess it's just sort of turning to the evidence of what, what's been done. So about 20 years or so ago, there was a lot being done on this. Um, there was a meta-analysis published in the mid-90s. This new 
look at kind of the overall effect it all just cancelled out so the meta-analysis is a study of studies so all of the various individual studies on this relationship between sugar and hyperactivity were kind of behavior and cognition combined together Yeah. yeah yeah And, yeah, suggesting that the strength of the evidence suggested no overall effect. And there have even been some studies comparing children being given sugar versus an artificial sweetener. Yeah, And it seems like it's the parents' expectations in particular that influence how hyperactive a child goes after consuming, whether it was the sugar or the artificial sweetener. Yeah, it was a really nice demonstration where, yeah, they were all given a placebo, which was artificially sweetened, but... Some parents were told their child had had sugar and some were told they hadn't. And the parents who thought their child had had sugar rated them as more hyperactive. And actually they were also um, kind of a bit more critical of their child. They tended to tell their child <laughs> off a bit more. Oh dear. Um, I mean, and these were, the parents recruited into the study were people who were particularly sensitive about sugar. There haven't been any, so many studies done recently. I wonder whether this area might research a little bit. But I mean, I favorite, think, you know, yeah. kids' parties, kids are just excited. Yes, of <laughs> If you course. put a load of kids in a room together, they will be excited. Uh, those are all the myths that I've got written mm. down. Have you got any more that you think we need to add? Well, I think, and I think this came out quite a bit sort of on Facebook and Twitter feeds. We're talking about artificial sweeteners. Artificial, oh, yes. Well, low-calorie sweeteners, they... Um, commonly called now rather than sort of artificial but as we've kind of said just because things are natural doesn't mean yeah. but yeah sort of obviously the term artificial so these are the sweeteners that are used in low calorie drinks like yeah, diet colas and so aspartame is probably the one that most people yeah, have heard of um, yeah, so but there are others aren't there as well yeah yeah i mean there's a whole range of of low calorie sweeteners i mean aspartame sort of had a lot of negative press yeah because sort of, a few years ago. A couple of years ago, Pepsi changed from using aspartame to a different one, and I can't remember what it was called now, but actually I it's the only time I've ever been in print in The Guardian, so it was very exciting. But I wrote an article about how their decision to do that actually wasn't based on any evidence at mm-hmm. all. It was based on that aspartame's got a bit of a bad rep. Aspartame has a terrible rep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've done been doing some research on this um, recently, and... The, the idea that it causes cancer yeah. is really, really prevalent. You know, But the evidence just, just doesn't, just isn't really there, is it? No. And I, I mean, I think it's, yeah, sweeteners, it's, oh, it's a great topic. And I think maybe I one for a I think it a would be a second podcast, podcast um, yeah. There is a lot of promise for using, using low-calorie sweeteners because we talked earlier about, well, ideally everyone would drink water, mm-hmm. but actually that's really hard if, you know... A lot of people don't, don't want, want to drink to. water yeah. and like, enjoy drinking sweet-tasting drinks, enjoy sweet-tasting products. So there is a lot of potential there with low-calorie sweeteners. The public perceptions are very divided, as we've been finding in our research, and that's not really in fitting with the evidence base, um, which is certainly the evidence for their effects um, in terms of um, weight management is actually that they are probably helpful. Yeah. But I think that's not really kind of filtered through to public perceptions. That's very interesting. And I think you're right that artificial sweeteners are probably worth a podcast in their own right. So we'll leave that there. Before we sort of wrap up, are there things that we don't know about sugar? We still don't understand a lot about the effects on biology and kind of actually how it affects our brain and our bodies. We've talked about some of the effects on the brain, but we don't really know how to interpret those or... Or what what those mean? Well, one of the things we really don't know that we we must kind of find out and get more insight into is just kind of how we kind of might help people to reduce 
consumption of sugar because yeah. I think yeah the evidence does really suggest we, we should be we we, we need to kind of start sort of curbing these trends and trying to reverse some of the yeah the increases that we've seen when consumption and also in obesity but exactly how we do that I think isn't really known there's loads of apps looking at kind of targeting more targeting the individual so it's yeah. kind of I think it's sort of that balance between sort of public you know sort of policy top changes. down and bottom up yeah, at the same time yeah, yeah giving people the autonomy to f- make their choices but also having legislation to yeah make those choices easier because by making sweet foods more expensive or something like that yeah yeah i mean i think it's quite interesting to sort of look at how things have worked you know in you know in smoking for example and the effects of the smoking ban and the legislation that's come in there and you know one does wonder is that kind of a way we might end up going with sugar mm. I mean, who knows i think but but certainly in terms of smoking and the smoking ban then you know as i as i understand it that has been pretty effective yeah but then you can't really have a sugar ban because we do need sugar exactly so it's not yeah it's not always, that equivalent in that way it's not and i think that makes it that a whole is, lot more complicated it does it does make it a lot more complicated it's not going to be a quick fix it's kind of going to be a kind of whole rounded approach and it is going to take time. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much, Dr. Charlotte Hardman, You're for joining us and t- talking about sugar today. And there we go. If you want more information about the topics and studies that we've discussed, all the links are, as usual, on the ACAST app. In particular, I would really recommend reading CRUK's excellent blog exploring the links between sugar and cancer and a really great piece by my dear friend Dr Kat Arney discussing sugar and hyperactivity in kids. I'll also link to some good websites that can help you understand more about free sugars and the difference between things like high and low glycemic foods. That's all for this week. Join us again for the next episode where I'll be talking with Dr Carl Roberts about cognitive enhancers. Bye! You've been listening to Say Why to Drugs with me, Dr. Susie Gage. The music was by Jim Murray. The artwork was by at My Name is Ad. Say Why to Drugs would not have been possible without the generous support of I'm a Scientist Get Me Out of Here, the Medical Research Council, and Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.